Welcome to the second episode of My Who Got, a production of Miscellany Media Studios. In episode one, I laid out just why I was doing this project. You know, that personal trajectory that had led me to undertaking this endeavor? That part isn't so important, so if you didn't listen to it, let me catch you up to speed right now. Basically, I'm a mixed-race, half-Filipino, half-white woman raised and currently living in America. And I miss my family in the Philippines, which is almost everyone but my mom. I hardly ever get to see them. And there's also my deceased grandfather, who used to tell all sorts of stories and kept the old folktales alive. When he died, these stories, despite us only seeing each other once, somehow lingered in my mind until a storytime-esque YouTube video jogged that memory and sent me on a quest to reconnect with a side of myself that I had to ignore while my father was dying. There, you're all caught up. So what I'm looking for, or what I'm thinking most about anyway, the thing that gave birth to this investigation, are those old stories. The mythology from a culture an ocean away, and, in many ways, these stories seem even more removed from reality. After all, the very word folklore conjures up images of a bygone era, you know, of those ancient days with ancient times and no internet. There's probably a reason it came to be that way, so now I'm fighting against space and time. Great. Now, there's two main research branches I could go down as far as this task is concerned. There's book research and there's internet research, and one might appear to be the more obvious choice. After all, in one of those branches, you can sort through a seemingly endless amount of information fairly quickly and easily. Also, it means not having to leave your house, which makes it more efficient on that front as well, and also means you don't have to put on pants. But I'm a tactile person. I do best when I can hold the text that I need to read. Also, I like bus rides. I live in Chicago now, which is a little bit like Manila in the vaguest of terms. It's a city with a lot of people and a lot of activity, like all cities. Then again, I've never spent that much time in Manila. Sure, that's where I always fly in and out of, so each time I go back, I spend some time there. Oh, and I have an aunt there. But, you know, the rest of my family still lives in the province, so that's where we spend pretty much all our time. Gotta maximize each vacation, after all. So, terrible segue aside, being in Chicago, I have access to the pretty incredible Chicago Public Library system. In particular, there's the Harold Washington Library, and I say in particular because I've been there before. About a year ago, I went there with a friend who is currently studying library sciences. Yeah, it was a pretty perfect activity for us to do together. And also, they had an amazing selection of Filipino cookbooks. So, fast forward to now, and I'm very aware that there's this giant building a bus ride away filled with knowledge that I have positive associations with, and it clearly knows that the Philippines exists. I mean... Obviously, it's not going to have everything, or every scrap of information in human existence. It's certainly not big enough for that, and all human endeavors are finite. But look, I'm digressing. Hard pull back. Here's the point. 
the odds are in my favor, right? Pro tip for research endeavors, don't go into an expedition with a hard idea of what you want to find, either in terms of conclusions or in terms of mediums you want to find those things in. Okay, um, so, wow, bad idea to record here, but basically, yeah, nope. Okay, so in terms of books or anthologies of Filipino folklore, I was looking for like an actual anthology or something like that, like a guidebook, like, you know, something with some arc or current going through it to carry the reading experience. Am I making myself clear? Not just a list is what I'm saying. And there's a book like that in the library system, but it's not at this location. What they have here is like a research encyclopedia where you can look up specific terms, like the I can't leave the building type of encyclopedia. So not a great day. So not a great day. A couple days later, I was making my usual trip through the bookstores around the University of Chicago area. Is that a bookstore crawl? I don't know. I like the term. Let's make that a thing. Oh, side note, Chicago is a great city for bibliophiles, but back to the point. While at these bookstores, I was looking through the various sections for anything like what I was looking for in the library. But literally anything. My standards had dropped dramatically after this last failure. So how did it go? Not much better. One bookstore had an entire shelf of Southeast Asian literature and anthologies and things like that, but none of these books included the Philippines. And you know, this got me thinking. There had to be a reason for this lack of material, right? And look, there's the explanation based on discrimination or dismissive attitudes or that sort of thing. It's possible, and I'm not going to pretend that it's not, but I'm also not going to gain much insight from acknowledging that there are horrible attitudes and people in the world. I already know that. And maybe those things go without saying. So here are the more innocent explanations. One, folklore, old tales, mythologies, and all that pre-jazz just aren't that popular. In a world of an infinite amount of media, there are other things that are demanding our attention and are likely making a more compelling argument. Also, um, shameless plug here, but Miscellany Media Studios has another show talking about the media we consume if you, uh, want to check that out. It's called Miscellany Media Reviews. It's on all the same platforms that this show is. Point being, the demand for folklore is a limited one, and there's the aforementioned internet, which has literally everything. Not really a fair competition, so you can't blame a bookstore for trying to maximize its inventory in other ways. But on the other hand, the Philippines is also in a weird position. Hear me out. This is a thought born from seeing how much Korean, Indian, and Japanese anthologies there are out there. Think about these countries for a moment. These countries are, in a certain sense, unified entities. And yes, even Korea, with its demilitarized zone and tensions in the region, can be thought of as a collective whole in the sense that I'm using that term. Because it's not so much about having a unified people, but about existing on a solid land mass, which the Philippines does not. 
The Philippines, on the other hand, is an archipelago, which means it's not a solid landmass slapped onto the ground, which is not how geology works, so sorry scientists. Rather, it's a chain of islands. About 7,000 islands. And you know how islands work, right? Bodies of land separated by water? And those are very real divides separating peoples from one another. On the bright side, if you look at a map, it's clear that the borders of the Philippines aren't drawn arbitrarily. That's just how the islands are grouped together. But this status as an island nation sets it apart from the rest of Asia and has its implications for what the Philippines is now. So, let's keep backing up. If my story started with a migration, that of a single person, let's take this back to the migration that initially settled what would become the Philippines. Which could very well be the hardest part of this entire broader investigation thing that I'm trying to do. Yeah, anytime you have to extend beyond written history, you're gonna have a hard time. For one, there's very little you can actually prove, and that's even if you have the vast capabilities of all of science at your disposal, which I do not have. And just to top it off, assuming you can make a solid argument about what I think of and what I think is called prehistory, you are always going to have someone out there who will vocally reject every single one of your arguments and premises, and they are going to be very vocal about it. But bear with me for a second, or several minutes. And let me also point out that this podcast is not meant to be, uh, how can I say this, an academic source, but a personal journal. The emphasis is not on the facts, but on my discovery of the facts. So this is not a good source for someone working on an essay. There's someone out there who came into this to save them some research, maybe not on the day I released it, maybe not on the week after I released it, but that person... The longer this stays up there, the higher the odds. And you, person, who came here to cut corners, need to not do that. You need to actually do your job as a student or whatever and do proper research. I'm not losing sleep over properly citing every little thing I say, because, well, one, in this medium, that's gonna get tedious and annoying very quickly. And, honestly, the premise of this series is that I am not an expert, but I want to learn. If you actually need an expert, you're going to need to go find one. Do you hear me? You need to actually put in the work if you have an academic assignment on this subject. There, that disclaimer over. Let me actually get to it. So, prehistory. Given the collective landmass of all the islands, their placement, their status as islands, and the logical geological happenings around the time the first humans would have made it to the Philippines, the general consensus is that they would have had to migrate there rather than originate there. But insert internet conspiracy theory here. And if you do that, also insert my not caring. Now, challenge. Explain how people got from point A, whatever that is, to point B. Side note, you may also have to explain who these people were. There are different ethno-linguistic groups throughout the islands, which is like the case in all other countries, but I'm not talking about those other places. I'm talking about the Philippines. The caveat here is that you have these different groups who, in theory, could have taken different paths to the Philippines, or they could have been part of one group who diverged as a result of their separation. 
Point being, there's a lot for any anthropologist to explain. To that end, I want to introduce you to what my research showed as the two most prominent theories. Watered down, of course. There's a lot of technical knowledge that goes into formulating and explaining each of them, which could be their own podcast if someone in the audience wants to launch one all about migrations. I'd probably give it a try, and there have definitely been worse ideas. So, in terms of getting at these beginnings, let's start with a different type of beginning. There was a guy you've likely never heard of by the name of Henry Otley Bayer. He was born on July 13, 1883, and died on December 31, 1966. So, not a great new year for him. I'm tossing out these dates just to give you some sort of an idea of the time frame we're talking about. Bayer lived at a time that feels incredibly far away, but maybe isn't by some standards. Like, my mom was born in 1958. So, it's, it's, he's one generation away, but I'm gonna let you make your own judgments. Anyway, Bayer was an American anthropologist who became known as the father of Philippine anthropology. His interest stemmed from a visit to the Louisiana Purchase Exposition in 1904. This historical expo is informally known as the St. Louis World's Fair for having an international scope to its exhibits and it, because of its size as well. And given the time period, maybe you have an image in your head of what this expo would have looked like. Yes, race and empire were prominent themes. But the emphasis for the average person was on the entertainment, consumerism, and pop culture. The actual race and empire stuff was more of a medium to get you to buy things. So not much has changed. Anyway, in that backdrop, young Bayer first encountered what must have been a mysterious and distant world. A magical place that might have seemed more like a fantasy. With that, an individual more inclined to dwell on the romantic would say that his fate was sealed, and the Philippines became an integral part of his destiny. And maybe there's something unsettling or repulsive about that idea. Like, the father of Philippine anthropology shouldn't have this origin story. And look, I get it. It's a thought I had too when I was researching this story. But then again, I started this whole expedition because of a YouTube video so maybe I'm not the one that should be complaining. Two additional points that helped me sleep at night when I found this out. One, circumstances of the world being what they were, this seems like the best case scenario, because at least his interest was genuine. In a letter to Carlos P. Romulo, who was the president of the University of the Philippines at the time, Bayer described his work as, quote, trying to serve the university and to procure and conserve for the people of the Philippines the evidence of their abundant ancient culture. From that, I think it's fair to say he didn't do this for the perceived glory of mastering some other cultural intellectually, which was something he could have done and been praised for. That view wasn't frowned upon like it might be now, so it's not like he had a reason to lie. And two, the world felt incomprehensibly big back then, or until recently. The Philippines was out in the middle of an ocean most people in the Western world would never get to see, both the ocean or the country. Travel, physical or digital, just wasn't feasible or possible. Not enough to bridge the gap, anyway, and 
And considering how much airfare to Manila can cost now, in many ways it's still not that accessible. Look at it this way. When my parents were married, my dad's parents, my grandparents, only had vague knowledge that a place called the Philippines, the, the place their new daughter-in-law was born in, existed. And I think the only reason my grandfather knew about it at all was because of World War II. But back to Bayer. After earning a master's degree in chemistry from the University of Denver, he volunteered to teach in the Philippines, initially as a teacher in Luzon, where he'd remain pretty much the rest of his life, marrying a local woman and building his life in that country. Now, this all happened at a time in history, both in the US and in the Philippines, where blind enthusiasm and hard work could make up for a lack of paper-based expertise. In time, he was appointed an ethnologist in the Philippine Bureau of Science, and in more time, became the sole instructor of anthropology at the University of the Philippines in 1914. Another 11 years later, he became the head of the university's Department of Anthropology and built up this child of his until his retirement. He never left the Philippines, and he in time died there. Now, as if to live up to his moniker, Bayer was the first to propose some sort of origin story for the Filipino people. And for all its problems, it's still one of the most widely known. Bayer breaks that initial migration down into four parts to make the Bayer Wave Migration Theory. As the title suggests, his theory centers around the idea that, that early peoples, pre-Hispanic, pre-conquered-by-Spain peoples, came to the Philippines in waves, or groups. But, I mean, there's some ocean involved, so maybe riding the waves, too. Each wave consisted of a different set of people. In the first wave, you have what is known in quotes as the Dawn Man, a caveman, Homo erectus type, of 250,000 years ago. Second group, the Aborigine group, known as the Negritos or the Aetas, come via land bridges, and this happens between... 25,000 to 30,000 years ago. Now, the Negritos are several different ethnic groups who live in isolated parts of South and Southeast Asia, who... There's probably about 15,000 people now? Third wave. So 5,000 to 6,000 years ago, a seafaring Indonesian group arrived and were the first to reach the Philippines by sea. Four, finally, the seafaring and more civilized Malays arrived with the tools necessary to usher in the Iron Age and the civilization that the Spanish would find when they came to conquer the ends. If it seems like I'm blowing past his theory, I kind of am, for one, because this podcast can't be absurdly long, and two, it's because this theory is important, mostly because it came first. It doesn't hold well against evidence. Bayer based it largely on 19th century assumptions that have not aged well by any means. And there's a gauntlet I could throw down, or I could be nice and let someone else do it. In 1994, Philippine historian William Scott said that, quote, It is probably safe to say that no anthropologist accepts the Bayer Waves migration theory. Didn't mince words about that. So, yeah, there's that, and by that I mean a valid life strategy. If you can't be the best or the most accurate, 
just be first. But look, there are still some who, despite Scott's impassionate dismissal, do prefer Bayer's theory to the others. But from my perspective, the evidence just isn't on his side. And this is mostly because his theory is pretty specific in terms of who came, when, and how. And when you challenge one of these positions, or when one of these things falls down, it weakens the structure as a whole. For one, there is no evidence of any sort of Don Man which doesn't necessarily have to be a deal-breaker when you consider the time frame, but there's reason to doubt the land bridge part of part two. Bathymetric readings of the Mindoro Strait and Subutu Passage suggest that, at the time discussed, that land bridge that Bayer talks about was just not a thing. Now, just to explain, bathymetry is like the underwater equivalent of topology, using digital images and observing the populations and distributions of modern organisms, scientists can predict how the depth of ancient lakes or ocean floors might have looked. Or, in this case, they can determine if something was ever above the water surface. And it just doesn't look like these landmasses were. Which pokes another big hole in his theory. On the other hand, there is a theory on more stable ground known as the core population theory. The core population theory was first proposed by Felipe Landa Hucano of the University of the Philippines. Yeah, that University of the Philippines, the one Bayer worked for. See, he's everywhere, but back to Hucano. Hucano's theory has, in my opinion, several advantages, namely a certain elasticity. His theory isn't so dependent on certain things happening at certain times, so pulling out a single domino doesn't hurt, nor does adding additional caveats or observations. It can adapt far more easily than Bayer's wave migration theory. Essentially, Hokano's theory centers on the idea that there were a core set of people who migrated not just to the Philippines, but throughout the region that is, is Southeast Asia. They started as one cohesive whole, and in time, their separation led to the different cultures. It's kind of like how, in Darwin's theory of evolution, you had one common ancestor for all the finches. Then they get separated, and each bird adapts to its own environment. So you can see the similarities between them, but each bird is still a distinct entity. And to take this to the present, many of the people throughout this region share common ethnic, cultural, linguistic traits. Far too many for this to just be a coincidence. And oceans being what they are, there likely wasn't all that consistent of an exchange, meaning it's not that likely that they converged onto this similar nature. Though this might not have been the phenomenon Hokano might have initially set out to explain, the best explanation for this is that they shared a common origin point and carried some of these traits throughout them as they lived their own lives. Because of this, I am infinitely more sympathetic to Hukano's argument than Bayer's, if you couldn't tell, which you definitely can because I said it a couple times. In part, because I can see Hukano's argument being incorporated into whatever theory eventually wins out. And there are newer ones out there that play to this theme with their own sea and land mapping techniques. What can't be debated, though, is just how amazing anthropology is as a science. There is just so much going on, and it's so impressive, and I feel like I certainly didn't do it justice here. 
So yeah, I would encourage you to do your own research on these theories to decide which one you think is the best and dive deeper into the evidence. As technology improves, we may converge more on an accurate theory and timeline of this era of Filipino history. On the other hand, there are things that we can be sure of. We can confidently say that humans were in the Philippines at least 67,000 years ago. And yeah, remember all those land bridges I talked about? Not, not a likely part of the narrative. Not with that date in mind, anyway. So more than likely, earlier Filipinos came by sea at a time when many experts assumed humans weren't capable of it. And we can be fairly confident about that 67,000. Scientists came up with it through the power of uranium series ablation, a dating process based on the consistent decay of certain isotopes. While we can't travel back in time to see when an object was born, we can observe the decay rate of the isotopes within it, and if we want to check our math, we can just observe the current decay of isotopes to make sure that we understand how quickly it happens. So yeah, we can feel fairly confident about that number. And how do we know this? In 2007, a team of archaeologists led by Professor Armand Salvador Mijares found a human bone while working in the Calao Caves, 210 miles north of Manila, which, if you didn't know, is the capital city of the Philippines. Up until then, the oldest set of human remains was that of the Tabon Man, who was only 47,000 years old. So yeah, this discovery is a little bit of a game changer. Just a little bit, though. As of 2012, the team was trying to get the necessary permissions to keep searching the area. And from my perspective, that's where the story has gone cold. If you find anything, and I hope you do, then throw it at us via social media. We're on Twitter, at MiscellaneyMedia, or Tumblr, also MiscellaneyMedia, all one word. So I know I've strayed pretty far from where I've started, and that doesn't bother me that much. Now I'm wondering, what did these early people think their origins were? We know the stories of Greek, Roman, Egyptian, and Norse deities. But what about those of the early Filipinos? Boy, have I got a story for you. See you in two weeks. This has been a production of Miscellany Media Studios. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing, or find us online at miscellanymedia.online. Thanks.